Father, we devote ourselves to study of your word and to praise in music, to worshiping in spirit and truth. Because in these days, Father, as we await your return, you have granted us these opportunities to come together and to be in your presence and to come to know you. We do not want, Father, to miss those opportunities. For one day, Father, we will stand in the presence of Christ and he will judge all things and we will receive reward according to our work in his kingdom. And we will be with him forever, as you promise, and we will be sinless and we will be like him. But in the days, Father, that wait for that second coming, in the days, Father, of this age, as we continue to walk in a fallen body and in a fallen world, though by the power of the Spirit, let us know, Father, that you grant us opportunity in your word and in worship so that we might be built up for the work of the ministry, so that we might be encouraged, so that we might be instructed and exhorted to be like you and to think like you and to speak and act like you. We come together, Father, to encourage one another so that the gifts you've given to each of us by the power of the Spirit might not be merely for ourselves, but might be used to the benefit of others in the body. Let us never forget, Father, that our presence is at once a blessing for ourselves as well as to others to whom we may minister to. Father, never let us forget that you've granted us these things because you know we need them, though we sometimes think we don't. Let us be true to that calling and to the grace you've given to us, Father. Let us be reflective of your love in all that we do and say. And so as we study now, Father, in the Gospel of Luke, let the Holy Spirit be the one who speaks, Father. Let this morning as we remember your resurrection be a morning, Father, where even now you stand before us by the power of the Spirit speaking to us as you did your disciples after you raised up. Let it be a time, Father, where we meet you and sit at your feet and hear and learn from your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As I said, open your Bibles with me to chapter 11 of the Gospel of Luke. If you do not have a Bible, as always, we provide some in the back of the church. Please feel free to wander back there and get one if you need one. We'd love to have you study along with us. And last week we ended in a roughly verse 23. I'm going to back up just a few verses for the sake of continuity, and we're going to reread a few that we read last week and then proceed forward from there. Go with me in Luke chapter 11 to verse 17. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if by Beelzebul I cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and not finding any. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. 
When Jesus stood before the crowds and the Pharisees and he performed that miracle of causing that demon to leave that mute man, as we taught last week, that miracle and that miracle all by itself proved that he was the Messiah. Though he did other things, though there were other signs, of course, if you needed only one, the one he performed in the case of the mute demon was sufficient to prove that he was the Messiah because it fulfilled one of the telling signs of Jewish tradition, of Jewish teaching, that the Messiah, when he came, would have a power that no one else before or since has ever had, the ability to cast out a mute demon. And we studied that last week in detail. When these people saw this miracle, we also said last week, they had become witnesses to the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And in that testimony, in that clear revelation that they had seen the Messiah, they had a choice. They could accept that sign, that clear, obvious sign, that sign that points only to the Son of Man, as we saw in the Gospel of Matthew last week. Or they would choose to not believe what their own eyes told them. Now, the Pharisees in that crowd, they made their choice. The Pharisees saw the miracle that they knew as well was only a miracle that the Messiah could perform, and they attested that miracle to the power of Satan. They turned their back on the work of the Holy Spirit and, in fact, went one step further and blasphemed the Holy Spirit by declaring that his work was actually the work of the enemy. And in doing so, they hardened their hearts. Jesus turns to them, as we've read again this week, and he unveils that corruption that's in their heart. And then he begins to reveal unimaginable consequences for their rejection of the kingdom. In that last verse that we read last week, verse 23, Jesus frames this issue, as we said, in these stark terms. He says, these people are either for him or against him. Now, I want you to think about the crowd, as we said last week. Think about this crowd for a moment. There is no doubt in my mind that within that crowd you had men and women who saw this scene and maybe had been watching Jesus from afar for some time, And as they came upon each of these miracles in succession, they were weighing each one. Is that proof or not? What do I think of this person? Who is this person that can do these miracles? And no doubt some of them would have called themselves undecided. If you had walked into that crowd and said, let me see a show of hands who believe this is the Messiah, you might have seen a few. And then again, how many in this crowd believe he's simply a charlatan, he's a fake, maybe a few hands up as well. But then you would have said, how many of you are not sure? How many of you do not know whether you are on his side or against him? And there would have been, I know, I would suspect, quite a few hands that came up for that third question. But Jesus doesn't give the crowd that option. He never gives them the chance to remain in some kind of in-between group. He says plainly, every human being has only two choices. And when it comes to Jesus, they either profess belief in his claim to be the Messiah. They either witness the miracles as the crowd did in his day, or in our day, we come to the Word of God and we hear the testimony of the Holy Spirit teaching us the Word of God about the truth that Jesus was the Messiah, and we see those things and we believe them. Or, you can think you remain undecided, you can think that you haven't come to any conclusion, but you are against Jesus if you think that you don't know the answer. The one who is not for Jesus the one who has not yet professed faith in him, the one who has not yet believed his words, that person, Jesus says, is automatically against Jesus. So as to say it this way, you are born an enemy of Christ. By faith, you profess belief and become an ally, a child of God for Jesus. There's no in-between. There's no day in your life when you're not an enemy of God or a child of God. 
Paul puts it this way. We were once sons of disobedience, and now we have become sons of God. There is only two states for any human being on earth. What's more, if you look at that verse we read last week, what's more, he says, it's not just that you are for or against him, but in fact you are working either for him or against him. The one who does not gather is scattering, in other words. It is in the work we do that we are either working against his purposes or with his purposes. You have become, if you remain an unbeliever, an agent of Satan. I don't think we like to think like that. I don't think most people who walk around in the world actually imagine themselves as being a part of some movement, of some force, of some effort that's counter to God. And yet, that's exactly what we do if we are an unbeliever. And the enemy, of course, loves the fact that we're confused about that point, that we're not aware of the, va- of the fact that we are an enemy of God. He would much rather us remain ignorant, undecided in our own minds, though working on his team. Every person who has not come to faith in Christ, who does not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is fighting against God and is an instrument of the enemy. Now look where Jesus goes next in the text. What I just covered is essentially a recap of last week, at least in the sense of how important it is that we know which side we're on. But now look at what Jesus begins to do, because in the context of this lesson, going back into last week, you remember we said this was the pinnacle at which the nation of Israel formally rejected the Messiah. Formerly, they stood up before Christ and said, we reject you, and therefore, we do not believe you are the Messiah. Therefore, we do not welcome the kingdom that you're offering. This is the moment in Jesus' ministry when that offer to the nation of Israel ends. There will no longer be an opportunity for the nation of Israel in that day to accept their Messiah. And now he begins to explain the consequences of their unbelief. First, he says, you're either with me or you're against me. There's no in-between. And if you're against me, here's what he says. In those new verses we read this week, he tells of a man who's possessed by an evil spirit. And should that spirit ever leave that man's body, and I mean either by his own decision to leave or whether he's cast out in some cases by a man working with the power of God, that demon is not going to find rest. Fallen angels, demons in this life, They have no place of rest save for the opportunity to enter into a man's body. So if you have a man who's been indwelled by a spirit, and in some way that spirit departs that person, Christ uses the euphemism having been put in order and swept clean. The defilement of of that demon has been removed. The body now is essentially an empty, clean vessel, if you will. Clean in the sense that it's no longer occupied by a demon. But finding no place of rest... Jesus says eventually that demon wants a home and he remembers where he came from and that wasn't such a bad place. Let's go back and get it again. And he says this time he knows how nice it was the first time he may tell a few of his buddies and bring them along with him. And now the guy that was once occupied by a single demon has multiple demons now occupying him. It would have been better if he had never been cleaned in the first place. Now this is somewhat uh, representative. In other words, it's not literally the case necessarily that every time one demon leaves, exactly seven return. It's not meant to be taken quite that literally, though it is literal in the sense that it is true that when men were casting demons out, if there was nothing put in the place of that demon, nothing put into that home to essentially guard it and protect it, then it was probably the case that other demons would eventually return, and probably more than one. That part of the story I do not want you to think is simply a parable. That part I think we can take literally. In Matthew 12, Jesus adds this statement in verse 45, speaking about the same thing. This is the same account in Matthew, but Matthew adds one more detail. In Matthew 12:45, then it goes, speaking of this spirit, 
Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself. They go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. This generation, the men and the women in the nation of Israel, who in Jesus' day saw the Messiah in the flesh, saw his miracles, heard his teaching, and through that were given revelation by the Holy Spirit that they were in fact seeing the Messiah. Remember, these people stood and saw him perform this miracle in casting out the mute demon. And what was their response? They said, this can't be the son of David, can it? This can't be the son of man, can it? They knew who this person was. They knew that they were looking at a miracle that pegged Jesus as the Messiah, but they couldn't believe it. They wouldn't believe it. And because they rejected that clear sign, they were rejecting not only him as a person, but they were declaring the work of the Holy Spirit to be the work of Satan. And in doing those things, they lost their opportunity to welcome in the kingdom of God. They essentially had been swept clean. They had seen Jesus show up, cast out demons from many men, demonstrating who he was. He had healed people. He had proclaimed the word. He had shown the glory of God in his own flesh. So they were clean for the moment, but they were remaining empty. And in remaining empty, empty vessels, they were ready for the enemy to reclaim what is his. You know, that's one of the messages you have to understand. Those who are not of Christ, those who do not believe in him, those who are not for him, as Jesus puts it, they are therefore against him. They are property of the enemy. They can be used by him and his agents to do Satan's bidding at any time. We've talked in here in the past about indwelling of demons and what do we make of that? And do the scriptures say it to be taken literally? And we've taught that it is not only literal, it is present day. Yes, there are mental illnesses. Yes, there are people who have physical maladies. But it is also true that many people we see today who are diagnosed by the medical community as merely having those things are in fact spiritually affected. They are in fact either indwelt by demons, terrorized by demons, under the influence of demons. But in our enlightened culture, we're not ready to see it that way. We believe everything that the doctors tell us, though they may not be seeing things with spiritual eyes. And so the solution to the empty swept house is to put, as Jesus tells in the story, a strong man to protect those possessions. Only in this case, a man stronger than the one who was there prior. In other words, the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit takes the place of that demon who is swept out of the house, then when he returns for that home, what is he going to find? He's going to find it occupied and occupied by one stronger than him. John puts it this way in his first letter, John 1 John 1, uh, chapter 4, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it, uh, that it is coming. Now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and, they were, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us, and he who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Do you see in John's letter even he, he reflects his two-sided factor in the world? Even the way John just wrote those verses, he keeps talking about two different spirits, two different worlds, two different people. One listens to one spirit, one listens to the other. If you are of the Spirit of God, the other world is not going to listen to you. 
Only those who are of God are going to listen to you. If you are not from God, then you're not going to be little children of God. But if you are from God, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So you have nothing to fear from him, spiritually speaking. And that is in the same context as Jesus tells the story about a man and a uh, with a demon, comparing it to an empty house, it's in that same context that he's offering the solution to that crowd. He's saying to them very plainly, you either for me or against me. If you're against me and somehow I show up and clean your house, it's not going to last unless you believe in me sufficient that the Father would send the Holy Spirit and protect you from the enemy. But if all you get out of me is some temporary benefit, a little demon exorcism there, healing there, a nice little teaching and parable there, and I leave and you have not believed in me, then the last state will be worse than the first. And for this generation, he's saying it specifically, for this generation, he says, it will be much worse. We're going to teach more on those as we look through the rest of Luke later. But I want to just stop at this point for only long enough for us to be sure that we're being properly challenged by what's being presented in in this gospel message today. For example, do we know what side we're on? Now, I think the answer would be an obvious yes in most people's minds. But I also want you to consider for a moment who the Pharisees were and what they thought. Did they think they knew what side they were on? Weren't they the ones who were sure that they had all the answers? Weren't the Pharisees the kind to know for sure in their own mind that they were pleasing God? That God was very happy with them because of all the good things they were doing? I mean, think about it for a minute. If a Pharisee was sitting right here now in this room... And we were trying to convince him that he needed to do something different in order to please God. What do you think would be in his mind? He'd be sitting here right now saying, I've already got it all together. God loves me. I'm righteous. I do all the things God expects me to do to be righteous. Are we like that kind of a person? Are we sure that in our own heart God loves us and is pleased with us because of what we do? Or maybe we're like the crowds. The crowds that would think of themselves as sort of detached and undecided. They're not even really involved in this issue. It seems to be a, an issue between Jesus and the Pharisees. Yeah, they can fight all they want. It's not, it doesn't really involve us. We're just watching. Yeah, except that Jesus said that if that's us, if we're undecided, if we really haven't committed to Jesus, we're just as assuredly on the side of Satan as the Pharisees are. It's just in our own mind we can kind of feel better about it because we really haven't felt like we've engaged in any kind of issue here. We really haven't bought into any kind of discussion forgetting for a moment that we start on the wrong side even before we get involved. We ought to be challenged by this verse on an Easter morning, at least enough to understand that unless we have on some occasion, each of us individually, thinking about yourself right now, don't think about your neighbor, don't think about your friend, don't think about your family member, but just for a moment, think about yourself. Have you at some point, at some place in your life, acknowledged Christ as the Savior And done so not just in a faithful heart, but in professing it through your lips. Those who believe in their heart and profess with their mouth will be saved. If you've not done that, if you've never had a moment in your life where not only was the belief in your heart, but you made effort to speak it to somebody, to profess it to somebody, then you might have reason to be concerned. You might be one of these people that fools themselves for a while, who kind of remains on the fringe, hangs around the edges of, of what you think is your faith, and play with it for a while, but... It's never become who you are because you've never actually taken it to heart the way Scripture requires. And if that's you, if that person is in this room or hearing my voice, then don't leave this message, don't leave this room first without asking for sure what side am I on and talking to me or somebody else about it. Now, on the other hand, if you know for sure that that is you, that you have professed Christ, that there's no doubt in your mind about that, and you are not against Him, 
Well, good, but now I ask a second question then. Do you ever find yourself doubting? Do you have the opposite problem? I wonder if I'm saved. I think I'm saved. I know I did it. Maybe it didn't take. Maybe I should do it again. He's making an altar call. I'll come up again. Just to be safe. If you're saying, no, I've never had that thought, you're lying. Or at least I'm the only one who thinks that. Because I don't know of anyone I've met who hasn't at some point, especially early in their walk, having heard the gospel message and believed in it, then come back at a later point and said, okay, I, I think I believed in it. But I'm now reading something that makes me wonder if it really did take. Or somebody's telling me something that makes me wonder. Or I'm sinning in a way that makes me question, how can I do these things if I really have the, the Holy Spirit guiding me? And if you're one of those people plagued by doubt, worried about the enemy or worried about his power over you, then remember the words of John. You have overcome the world because he who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Don't have doubt. In fact, why did John have to write that letter? He had to write that letter because we think like that. Because the people in his day were thinking like that. Because in some cases, for some reason or another, they had doubt. And his proof to them was, if you've got the Holy Spirit, and there'll be fruit to demonstrate that, then you've got someone in you who is stronger than anything in this world. So what's there to worry about? Now, that doesn't mean your body in its sinful state can't do things you wish it wouldn't. Paul talks at length in Romans about the fact that he did the things he didn't want to do. If Paul can live like that, then don't let that drag you down to the point of questioning whether or not God has done what he promised to do. When the end comes, when we enter his presence, never to leave it again, we'll find out in that day how true the promises were and we'll regret the years we took in this life to doubt rather than to act in faith. Hebrews 6.18 puts it this way. I love the way Hebrews says this. Take hold of the hope that is set before us. Now, what I like about that is he distances you from the hope. Do you know that you had a hope placed before you? By salvation in Christ, you now have hope. God did this. Here's your hope. The hope for resurrection, hope for eternal life, hope for power in this life by the Holy Spirit. It's all sitting right there. Now, you can leave it there or you can take hold of it. Now, whether you take hold of it or not doesn't change the truth of it. You see what I'm saying? Those promises don't depend on your willingness to believe them. They're there whether you believe them or not. As a believer, you have all that hope. Now, you can choose not to pick it up and live a life that's scared and worried and traumatized and at all moments questioning whether you have what you think you have. Or you can pick it up and take hold of it. And in taking hold of it, live it out. Doesn't change the promises, doesn't change where you're going to go, doesn't change what God has said He's going to do, but it certainly makes life here a lot more pleasing, a lot more secure, a lot more pleasant. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus declares to the crowd, as He did in Luke, that they are either for Him or they are against Him. But then He adds an important detail. In Matthew 12:30, He says, He who is not with Me is against Me. He who does not gather with Me scatters. But then He says this, Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. I'm sure many of you have heard these verses, perhaps heard teaching on them. They're verses that often challenge people because they bring to mind a question of, is there something I can do that's unforgivable in the eyes of God? What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Do I need to be worried about this as a believer? Well, remember, Jesus stands before this generation in his day, those who were rejecting him in that moment. He proved to them through miracles who he was in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
He provided first-hand witness, unlike anything the world had ever seen before or since. I mean, remember, these signs that he performed were made available graciously to one and only one generation in all of history. You and I know of Christ because someone told us about the Lord or because the Word of God spoke to us about the, the Lord. You and I did not get the privilege of seeing God himself in flesh stand before us and perform miracles and demonstrate who he was by the power of the Holy Spirit working through him. But that generation did. And for that generation to reject that sign, it was an unforgivable sin. For that generation to have the revelation of the Holy Spirit in that way and to not seize it, though they knew it, remember? They knew what they were saying. They chose not to believe it. was an unforgivable sin. It was a rejection for which there is no recovery. There is no second opportunity. And let me tell you why. If someone in that crowd ten years later had been approached by the Apostle Peter or by the Apostle John or by Paul, and it had the testimony of Christ given to them in that moment. If John or Peter or Paul walked up to them and said, let me tell you about Christ and that he was the Messiah, and lays out all the details of his ministry and demonstrates that he was the Messiah, the fact that that same person had an even greater revelation in the form of Christ himself and the Holy Spirit and rejected it then, he will not be granted the opportunity to believe on the basis of a lesser revelation. Having rejected the greater, the lesser will not satisfy Now, you and I, we can't make that particular mistake, now can we? We don't have the option of having seen Christ in the flesh and now having a secondary revelation. We only have the revelation that we get through Scripture. And so for us, that particular mistake is not available. It was a unique, once and only once sin opportunity for the nation of Israel. And in having done it, they were given no further opportunity. But Jesus said this would be an unforgivable sin for this age and the age to come. So he does suggest a continuing opportunity in some other form. The one that was made, the mistake that was made in Jesus' day, that can't be made again because his presence won't be here, at least not in this age. But there is an age to come. And when we hear in Scripture of an age to come, we're always talking about the Messianic kingdom, the millennial kingdom, an age when Christ, having returned in physical form, will set up a kingdom on earth with Israel as the chief nation of the earth, all other nations under Israel, And all believers who've ever lived, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, coming into that kingdom and reigning with him. But there will still be unbelievers in that world. It's a teaching I don't have time to provide here, but out of the book of Revelation, we know, out of Isaiah particularly, there is still sin in the world, even in the time of the Messianic kingdom. It isn't coming from you and I, but it is still in the world. Remember at the end of the Messianic kingdom, at the end of the millennial kingdom, how does it end? Satan is let loose. For a time, so that he can deceive the nations of the world, and then there is a final battle where he is finally cast into the lake of fire. How is he deceiving people if it's only believers who are without sin? It is clearly the case that he is coming into a world where there are still some he can deceive, bring down, and call to his side, at least temporarily. My point in all this is that in the age to come, this sin returns. Because in the age to come, you'll have Christ physically on the earth again, ruling as king of the earth. And if somebody in that age sees him and rejects that revelation, they also will commit the unforgivable sin. For us now in the church age, this time when we wait for his second coming, this is no longer something that can occur for us. Not in the context in which it's given. Not under the situation in which it's defined. Unless, unless you consider rejecting the gospel as itself a blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. Because as we've said already, 
If you were to try to commit this sin today, the only way you could do it is in the face of the Holy Spirit presenting you with the revelation of the good news, of the gospel message, hearing the news and then turning your back on it, never to believe before you die. Well, that's unforgivable because you give God no option for grace, no faith, no belief, no grace. And so everything is on the line in that decision. For us today, when that crowd saw Jesus cast out a mute demon, they knew what it meant. They'd been taught since day one to look for that sign. They knew it from personal experience. And when they saw it and they recognized it, they said no to the Holy Spirit. And when they said no to the Holy Spirit, they said no to an eternity with God. And the same rule applies today. Anytime the word of God is preached, anytime a messenger brings a clear word of truth from Scripture, anytime the Holy Spirit works to bring that truth to the heart of a man or a woman, and they hear it, and they understand it, and they reject it. Everything is on the line for that individual. The stakes have been raised infinitely. The time for that individual has come. There are no neutral parties. There's no way to remain undecided. There's no more debating. There's no more waiting for another moment. It's all or nothing. And in that moment, when the Holy Spirit brings that truth to the hearer, if they reject it, how do they know there'll be a tomorrow? How does that person know that there will be a chance tomorrow to get the same opportunity they had today? With each opportunity that they say no to, they are effectively betting that they're not committing the unforgivable sin in that moment. That there will yet be another opportunity. But if they're wrong, and one day they will be, then they are committing, essentially, the unforgivable sin. They are leaving God no option. Now, this may be, as I end today, this may be a moment for someone here. I don't know everyone in this room. I don't know anyone good enough to know for, for sure what's in their heart. Only God knows that. And I wonder if someone in this room hasn't long considered themselves to be a good person, someone who would have told their neighbor they are a Christian if they were asked. But now, for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit is in their heart speaking to them even now about the fact that there has been a difference in what they thought versus who they are. And that person is considering, I hope, the challenge that Christ offers. You know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, one, Working with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. What Paul said with so much earnestness, with so much desire, was don't wait for tomorrow. You may not have tomorrow. Today may be the day. God had a day appointed for your salvation. It's today. In the receiving of it and in the accepting of it, you assure yourself salvation. In the rejecting of it, you don't know if there will be another chance. For as surely as Christ rose from the dead on this day of Easter, we are remembering that he gave up his life for your sins and mine and that if we would accept that sacrifice, we will surely spend eternity with him. We will rise as he rose on this day. And I would pray today as we end that no one in here who has any doubt in their hearts, who has never spoken up publicly and confessed Christ, would take the chance that if they left today without having done that, that there'll be another day. Because we don't know that. James says we are here today and then we are vapor, we are gone. Do not say what we will do today or tomorrow. Go with me in prayer if there's any who would feel the desire to respond to this invitation, someone who knows that today is their day. Then as Daniel comes up and we prepare to end in song and in communion, I would pray you would find your way to come to the front of the room and just sit next to me. 
I'm not going to make you stand up. I don't care if anybody wants to make a public profession to the group. But if you profess it with me, if you come and pray with me, God will know your heart and you will be saved by your faith. I hope you'll have that opportunity. I hope you'll have the courage if God is speaking to you now to do that. Let's go to the Lord. Father, this time in Sunday morning is a brief moment in our week. Even Easter, Father, comes along only once a year. Sometimes, Father, we look at a calendar that repeats itself every year and we assume that all things come around again. Sundays come around again. Easter's come around again. Opportunities come around again. But Father, your word tells us that there is a day appointed for salvation. Not days. There is one opportunity that when the Holy Spirit decides to bring the message of the truth to a heart, to quicken the heart, to convict of sin, to bring the knowledge of the truth of the gospel to that individual. That is the day. But that same moment, Father, calls on a response. It requires that the individual not do as the crowd did, not do as the Pharisees did, not look at truth, stare it in the face, know it for what it is, and yet turn your back on it. A day like this, Father, calls for a response. I pray, Father, that for who might be hearing this invitation, whether in the room, whether at a later time, that they would have the courage, Father, to respond. They would not let relationships deter them. They would not let the past deter them. They would not let their own mistakes deter them. They would understand, Father, that so much is on the line and eternity is on the line. And you did not die on the cross, Father, for your own sake. Your son's death, Father, was not merely for his own obedience to you. It was obedience, Father, but it was for something so much more, Father. It was so that you might redeem the world, one man, one woman at a time. I pray, Father, someone in this room, anyone, Father, whose heart may be stirred, would be the one who would respond today and be redeemed. We lift this up to you, Father, asking for the work of the Holy Spirit, that whoever may be saved by their faith, Father, would give glory to you, because it is by your Spirit that all men come to know you. And that if the word, Father, has gone out, it will not come back void. And I pray, Father, that even in this moment, we would see that fruit. Father, we give you thanks. We praise your holy name on this Easter Sunday. We thank you, Father, for a study in the word. We pray we would have opportunity to continue in it next week. And to do so, Father, with a body of believers, even one more than it is today. If it be your will, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.